This episode of The Flight Diary is brought to you by Wander Disc Golf, a brand that's bred from passion for the sport and all of the beautiful places it can take us. Wander has a wide variety of thoughtful apparel rooted in disc golf and an advocacy for mental health. Find them at at WanderDiscGolf on Instagram and shop at WanderDiscGolf.com. This episode is also brought to you by Double Helix Disc Sports. Double Helix exists to provide the best in equipment and apparel for players at every skill level. They are also the manufacturer and exclusive seller of their own grip solution, Ringtail Dry Sacks. Brothers Mark and Matt aim to provide an extremely high level of quality and customer service in everything they do for the disc golf community. So browse their selection at doublehelixdisksports.com and use the code FLIGHTSHIP at checkout to get free shipping on your first order. For more news, giveaways, and sweet disc golf content, follow them on Instagram at doublehelixdisksports. You're listening to The Flight Diary, an intimate collection of stories, theories, and thoughts from the world of professional disc golf. I'm your host, Brian Earhart. Today I'm bringing you the first half of a three-hour-long conversation I had with someone whose come-up story I'd been dying to dig into for a very long time, the GOAT himself, Paul Macbeth. As much publicity as he's gotten over his already long career, I was still left very curious about how his brain worked and what truly led him to dive headfirst into his incredibly lofty goal to be the best and most influential male competitor in the modern era of the game. It was a true pleasure getting to know him better, and I'm very excited for you all to get to know him a little better as well. Enjoy. I want to go back to Little League Baseball Paul, you know, elementary school Paul. If, you know, I was a teacher of yours, what, like, what kind of kid would I be getting? A very quiet one. A very quiet, shy kid. And I believe that was just because when I was very young, I was in okay. athletics. Even, even you know, you said five years old, but I was already playing baseball at five. I, I, honestly, I probably started at like one. Like, I don't even know if I'm old enough to be wearing shoes yet at that point. I yeah. shouldn't even be walking. <laughs> I, was, I was walking early. So swinging bats. Mm-hmm. Um, so athletics from a very young age. Mm-hmm. But I never did the talking side. Uh-huh. You know, even at five years old, I, I, I didn't like class. Uh-huh. I, I didn't mind learning. Yeah. I just didn't like talking in class. I didn't like um, doing that that side of it. Uh-huh. I just like doing the work, playing sports, and that that's what I felt like was more of the talking. Was it like a was it like a family thing? The sports. I, I mean, I know you have a pretty big big ish family, and I know when I listen to podcasts about other athletes, they always talk about like sibling rivalries and whatnot. Was it like that for you growing up, or is that why you were quiet as well? Like, what, what was that for you? I mean, I, I mean, my my parents are Mexican. My grandparents Mexican, so I don't know if there's many Mexicans that don't have large families. Okay. So we had a very large family, but I was kind of in the bubble. Like there was not really, you know, cousins my age. They're usually older or younger. Uh-huh. You know, I'm kind of right there. I'm 30 now. Uh-huh. Most of them are 33. Th- you know, up up in that age, or like my brother's the closest in age. He's 29. He is close, but then after that, my younger brother is is 26 now. So it, it's kind of like between 
older or younger. And my brother and I were kind of right in that little pocket. So uh-huh. we were the we were the only two that were competitive in sports because the older ones were were I mean a lot more mature than we were. Were they into sports or was it just like you weren't on the same level as uh, them? Like th- in life? they were more basketball, more basketball okay. on that side. Uh, they had grown earlier. Six feet, you know, in early high school, like they must had grown. be nice. Yeah, they, <laughs> they had grown, but since then they haven't grown much. But uh, and then younger was more extreme sports, skateboarding, uh, BMX, biking. So I was the only one that was really playing like baseball. Okay. Uh, my uncle had played uh, a lot growing up, so I think that's where I kind of got it. Was my I was raised a lot by my grandparents. Um, so my grandmother, apparently, she was the one that put a baseball in my hands very young. You know, in the crib, like baseball bat you know, it was from her. <laughs> I was looking at, actually, I just went back home in December and they pulled out baby albums. And I, for some reason, my first birthday, I was getting a baseball bat and, and yeah, a baseball. You're going to play in college one yeah. day, boy. So, exactly. So it was one actually, because I remember it was the first wow. birthday seeing the picture and dated. That's so funny. So yeah, it's just been, it's been that ever since. So uh-huh. it was my, it was my grand, gra- my grandmother from what I hear mainly. And you grew up in California? Huntington Beach. Yeah. is the majority city. Uh, that's where my grandparents lived. Mm-hmm. My family and I, we moved around a lot. But it was all within like a thirty-minute radius, mm-hmm. um, and I actually just uh, filmed a video with Discraft, which will which will kind of take you back to some cool. of the places, and and to the point where our video, our video guy was a little worried. He made us leave some spots. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. Okay. He said we can't be hanging out in this alley too long. We need to go. Wow. So that's <laughs> like the places that you grew up. Mm-hmm. One of. Yep. Wow. So I mean, there's a lot of people in disc golf that come from you know all different backgrounds and, and upbringings. And you just mentioned like not growing up in like the, would you say that not necessarily the safest neighborhoods? Some of them, I remember we weren't allowed to leave our yard. The only people we could hang out with was the neighbor because they knew them and they had actually significantly big backyard. Their yard was pretty wild. And they, when, when I remember we went into their house or their garage one time and it was just covered with boxing championships. Whoa. Okay. So they, yeah, I don't know, but it was like Mexican boxers and they were just, they had titles. (laughs) <laughs> and so, Whoa, okay. so, yeah, so I don't remember any of their names, but apparently they felt secure there and safe because they had, wow. they had some ammunition in their, in their fists. <laughs> yeah, you so. had people that could punch yeah. if you were um, in danger. Yeah, so uh, that was, we lived there for a couple of years. I remember that. But we always had our hub in Huntington Beach, which was my grandparents' mm-hmm. house. So that was kind of, as far as schooling, that uh-huh. was always our, our residence as far as the schools and baseball knew. So we'd have to travel like 30 minutes to play sometimes, but... Yeah, we, we always had that little that little house. Does that also, you know, that era of your life, being a kid that can't go anywhere but the neighbor's house, you know, is that why, I know you talk a lot about family even now and, you know, your disc golf life and your career and outside of that. Do you think because of that feeling of safety, is that why family means so much to you or partially? Yeah, family, I mean, it was really important. Uh, my mom had eight brothers and sisters and my dad had I think close to that probably more like five or six so I mean they were they had large families you know with, with siblings and stuff like that so I had a lot of aunts and uncles and uh, so that means I had a lot of cousins so when we'd have parties and stuff like that that's when we got to see everyone that's when we played the most sports like the you know the Thanksgiving football games the basketball games so a lot of competitiveness and, and just fun natured sports as far as all the kids and stuff uh-huh. So, I mean, that's always been how, how it's been, like families yeah. and par- parties and events and things like that. But it was also the time when, when we weren't allowed to, like, because we didn't live in Huntington Beach, but we went to school there. So none of our friends could come 30 minutes to where we lived or mm-hmm. go to the house that we were staying at because, you know, you, you're not going to let your, your 10-year-old go 
you know, four or five towns over. Exactly. So, okay. So we didn't have many friends at our houses mm-hmm. coming over to visit very rarely. Um, so I think that was, that, that kind of in, involved a lot of the social shyness and things like that. That makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up and obviously sports, you've already mentioned sports at age one, a lot of the people that I've spoken to don't idolize athletes and they don't, you know, even growing up, they weren't like, you know, starry eyed at athletes. They just wanted to play. Did you have a similar thing? Like, did you just like playing sports or were you a huge fan of, you know, athletes or tried mimicking different athletes growing up? I was a huge fan of athletes. Uh, with baseball, I always wore number two uh, because of Derek Jeter. You know, I wasn't a Yankees fan, but I was a huge Jeter fan. Mm -hmm. And then same with like football. Like if I ever played football or was quarterback, I'd wear number seven because of John Elway. So there was always, I loved, I love sports, you know, Uh, Kobe Bryant, 24, Mamba mentality and all that stuff. So I've always been a huge fan of sports and athletes. Uh, And then just like, I've always wanted to take stuff from them, essentially, like, like usually the mental side, the side that you can't see. What was it about Jeter that uh, stood out to you? Do you, do you remember exactly what it was when you were a kid? I do. I, I think the fact that he was very like. I I don't know. I have a draw to these sports athletes that are kind of mysterious in the sense of like you didn't know anything about Derek Jeter's personal life, uh-huh. and the reason you didn't know that is because he still hung out with the friends that he went to high school with. I see. You know, he wasn't hanging out with the celebrities. He wasn't hanging out with, with at, at the time. Yeah, TMZ um, wasn't like snapping yeah, photos. Yeah, it wasn't like A Rod. Yeah, you know, he wasn't like A Rod exactly. who was out there in the public eye. And same thing with Tiger Woods. Like you don't know much about his personal life, and that's why I fi- find it so intriguing mm-hmm. because you have to you actually have to do work. And yeah. now Tiger's you know forty something years old. He's finally opening up. Yeah. But during his during his playing days, you know, he had a lot of secrets that yeah, wow, that he was keeping, you know, to himself or, or very small, small mm. community, to where he could, uh, you know, develop and hone his skill. But it's that saying, you know, like people people don't see what you're doing in the dark. Yeah, you know, they only see what you do right there at the event, but they don't know the work that you're putting in behind the scenes. Exactly. So, so is that what you were doing? Is that kind of like what stood out to you as a kid too? Is mm-hmm. that what you enjoyed about them? That's kind of a higher IQ thing to think about as a kid. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's just I think it's just the sports side. Like I love that yeah. mysterious side to where there's there's more than you see. Exactly. And I want to know what that more is that they're doing. Especially in disc golf. It's like <laughs> a lot of people don't r- truly realize how crazy some of these people are. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, people think that they're just they're just traveling in a car and, and that's good. it. And they're just having fun. Yeah, yeah, and they're just playing and that's all it takes. Yeah, so so obviously you're getting older and you move through sports. And I, I think I remember just listening to other interviews that baseball was the one that kind of stuck with you. Mm-hmm. And that was the one you fell in love with. And were you trying to be a pro baseball player? Did you ever have that thought in your head? Like uh, growing yeah, definitely, up? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. I mean, I, I played with some kids that, you know, well, I call it kids now. They're yeah. they're in the, you know, in the majors now. And like one kid, for example, uh Chris Davinsky is a mm-hmm. pitcher for the, the Houston Astros, which Houston Astros sore subject for some, but he won a yeah. ring. He won a ring with them. That's and I was like, awesome. I was playing he was my teammate. I I wanted to hit against him. Because he was so good, I was like, yeah. I want to, I want to see that. I want to face that. Like, why can't we have a pitcher that's exactly throwing high nineties and is a MLB talent? Like, yeah, I want to see what I can do against MLB talent. Exactly. Uh, so, I definitely thought there was potential, but when I had disc golf, I found that as more of a pioneer route, more so than like if I play baseball, I might be a Hall of Famer. But, mm-hmm. but you know, like if if I become a Hall of Famer, what is that? What what did I do for the sport of baseball that made a difference? And it wouldn't have been much. I would have just been, it would have felt selfish to me to do that. I see. So Compared to disc golf, you know, I was like, I can be a pioneer in this. And, and, and I know there was the climb of the Schultz before, but yeah. what can I do that's going to help the sport in, in the grand scheme of things? Whoa. Okay. So 
I have to position this question appropriately because I think you just brought up an interesting point. You said you you just said that you wanted to be a pro baseball player, and and just real quick, how old were you when you first started thinking about that, like working towards that? Being being a professional baseball baseball player, player like, yeah, I, I would say probably before five. Oh, so you instantly were like, I want to be an athlete. Yes. Okay, yeah. and you were that you treated baseball as such. Mm-hmm. When did that overlap happen in disc golf? Like, we'll go back to when you first started playing, but like, what when was that happening? Uh, well, so I knew about disc golf very young. My dad had played, um, uh-huh. and he had taken me out to the course uh, at Huntington Beach Central Park, uh-huh. but I didn't like playing it because it felt forced. It felt forced upon, and he enjoyed it, and I just liked riding my bike on the course because it was yeah. fa- fairly flat, but there were some hills. So I'd take my bike out there, ride my bike, and then um, the overlap actually happened at high school. You know how I told you that I lived far away and all that stuff, so... We got to high school. I wanted to go to the school called Edison High School, which is where all the kids I went to middle school with ended up going. So I knew everyone. Okay. Everyone I played baseball with was pretty much going to Edison. But my mom wanted me to go to the high school that she went to, which was Huntington Beach High School. So I knew nobody. Didn't know the coaches there. Didn't know the players there. Didn't know anything. So I was already a shy kid. Mm -hmm. So now I'm twice as uncomfortable trying to try out for this team. I don't know anyone there. I don't know the coaches. And turns out that, you know, that that team was already decided because the the coach had already known all the kids growing up from eighth, seventh grade and all that stuff. So I already had like an uphill battle there. Yeah. Wow. Didn't make the team. And I kind of was like, I I still want to play sports of some sort. I want to do something, you know, and that's kind of when I fell into disc golf more of this is something I can be competitive with uh-huh. and I don't need other people there to be competitive. Like I, I, could, I could, you know, play against myself. Like I might shoot eight over mm-hmm. this day, but I can go back the next day and try to shoot seven over. Yeah. You know, and it's just competitiveness in that sense. So that's kind of where the, the, the points started coming together. The, cro- the crosshair started coming together. That's a crushing blow. You like, I mean, you're probably a solid baseball player up to that point. Was that the first team that you got cut from? Uh, well, yeah, there wasn't really cuts up until that point. Yeah. So, so I didn't play for that. That's I didn't play for that team. I so after that, I don't even think I went back the next year to try out. I just started playing disc golf and having Whoa. fun with it, with like the leagues and stuff, and being competitive there. So I kind of let that go, but I didn't quit baseball. Like baseball uh-huh. came back later. Okay. But there was four years of not playing. Were you baseball. crushed? Were you like absolutely crushed when you didn't make the team, or were you expecting not to make it? I think I was. I think I was more like, oh, use the word crush. I think I was more crushed because I don't feel like I was given a fair opportunity. Okay. You were kind of like angry almost. Mm-hmm. Yep. I see. Yep. And I was like, you know, and that that's kind of a theme of my life is like, I've always been overlooked and everything. I see. I'm not, you know, I'm not six two. I'm not just giant ball of muscle. I mean, yeah. like that's something I can work on totally. But yeah, uh, like the thing that it was, was that that high school, they used the eye test very hard. So the whole team was basically six foot or taller mm-hmm. and everything. So that that's very heavy eye test because they feel like if I got a six foot athlete, uh-huh. you know, he can I can run. work with him. Exactly. Yeah. I'm the coach. I'm getting paid to do this. I can make that player better instead of the one that's actually more talented uh-huh. and has the and skill cares. set. Yeah. Yes. So that's a theme of yeah. that area. Wow. Okay. Again, a mature feeling to have at mm-hmm. such a young age and you said you were how old when that happened to you when you I, was young, of... I was younger so i would might have been 13 or 14 i was i was wow. younger than the rest of the kids yeah that's still such a competitor's mindset to be like mm-hmm. oh the coaches just made a terrible decision i'm way better than all these <laughs> kids so you sounds like this happened you made a mature decision to just like 
kind of go with disc golf. And did you fall in love with it competitively right away? Or were you just playing it to kind of like do, 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 walk around the park, froth it up? Definitely the competitive side. Instantly. Uh, yeah. Instantly competitive side. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I never looked at it as, as a hobby. Uh-huh. You know, I never looked at baseball as a hobby. Okay. I never looked at disc golf as a hobby. But I didn't know the potential of disc golf uh-huh. either. Well, it was like, also like, what, 2006 or five or f- 2004 uh, maybe? Four. 2004. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, disc golf really wasn't that far along. I guess it had come a long way, but you also didn't have a lot to watch either yep. back then. Mm-hmm. This was pre-YouTube. Never watched it. Didn't know who any of these players were. Yeah. Like, like I had a disc that said Ken Climo on it. Don't know who Ken Climo is. Like, never seen a picture of him or anything, especially when I first started. Yeah. Besides that, it said 12-time world champion. And I remember, like, when I had baseball gloves, it'd say, like, Alex Rodriguez, and I knew who that was. Mm-hmm. You know, so this disc said Ken Climo. Mm-hmm. So apparently he's important. When I first saw, like, the, I think when I first started playing 04, how many world titles had, had he had? Like, he 11? won his last one in five, I think. 05 or 06 or yeah. one of those. I remember seeing that, Six, that advertisement, right. like 11-time mm-hmm. world champion or 10-time world champion, and being yeah. like, mm, professional disc golf doesn't sound that legit if this guy wins every single time. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's one guy who's really good at it. I had no idea either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Yes, Climo won six, 2006 is... Because Doss yeah. won 2005. That's what it was. But yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't look into it that much. Mm-hmm. I was like, I mean, that's pretty cool. He's got his name on it, so he's important. <laughs> yeah. But I was more so just, we had a weekly junior league mm-hmm. at, at the course. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you signed up, I think it was I think it was $10 to play. You get $8 credit. So essentially, you get one disc every time you play if you want to buy a DX one back then. It's like a kid's dream. So Exactly. Yeah. So then you could save it up week after week after week. Uh. So I had so many discs by, you know, <laughs> starting out. I always like to ask this question, like, once you started taking it seriously, which was instantly almost, mm-hmm. besides, like, obviously your first few times going out, what was your game like? How did you start your disc golf build? What discs? And what did you start to lean on instantly? Straight forehand. All forehands. Yeah, all forehands. I mean, because from, coming from baseball, it was just natural, and it's just instant distance. I mm-hmm. mean, everyone's kind of used to throwing something. Yeah. So I knew that if I threw this, it was going to go forward. Yeah. Backhand was a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I only learned backhand because I watched people do it. Yeah. But You didn't they, know, like, the skill ceiling of the backhand? Not really. Not really. Yeah. Uh, not at first at all. So everything was forehand. That's how I tried to get my distance. But then as I, I think, maybe a year in, because I started in 2004, and I went to the Am Worlds in 2005. Okay. So by 2005, I was developing a backhand. Okay. So I remember that. Real quick, 2005, I was looking up some like disc approval dates. Mm-hmm. I think the fastest disc at the time, well, 05, I think the Wraith came out. The Orc, by orc when was, I was, yeah. The Orc was the top one. Is that what you were throwing back then? Yeah. So I started out when the Beast came out. Yes. So I was throwing the Beast forehand, and then the Orc came out. And then I do remember when the Wraith came out because it was in the PDJ magazine. It was like, off the scale. I know. It was first speed 11, I think, or mm-hmm. 10 or it something. It was the first speed 11. Yeah, so speed 11, it's like, yeah, and everything goes to 10, apparently. So it was like, we're breaking it. Uh, but I remember <laughs> all the advertisements for that and yeah. stuff. Love that. Yeah. So that's what you were throwing. And it's so funny because I got into disc golf at the exact same time that you did. So mm-hmm. the, the funniest thing that happened to me was the premium plastic yep. debacle uh, where you get like your beast and you're, you know, you're loving your DX beast or whatever you're throwing. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, champion beast. It's cool looking. It's tie dye. Totally different disc. And you had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have, have something like that happen to you? Or did you go to champion? 
Plastic right away. Champion was out. Okay. Uh, yeah, so everything was Champion Plastic. I mean, I grew up in Huntington Beach, which has been stated here a couple times, which is only an hour from where Innova is located. Okay. So we always had the disc first because the guy that ran the pro shop kind of had it in at Innova. I see. So we always had stock. We always had that, always the newest stuff. So yeah, everything was Champion back then. And I think back when that was back when like ProLine was uh-huh. like Champion and stuff like that. So that was... Those weren't as sought after I see. back then, but uh, everything was was uh, the top of the line plastic. I remember getting the special blend orc, which the special blend orcs and special blend T birds, which eventually turned into star. Okay, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I so. see. Yeah, I was gonna say I I remember having to like search the web for the few disc golf shops that there were to even get something like I think it was a special blend orc. It was like a blue one. It's so weird that nothing even close to what we're throwing now was even in existence because none of those are over that overstable. You know, the orc maybe in a champion plastic was decent. So you were forehand heavy and your backhand was coming along. And actually, we can't let's jump into 2005 and worlds. I know you've talked about this on a few different podcasts and um, in previous episodes, I think with Yuli, we've mentioned it kind of an interesting tournament for those of you who haven't heard this am worlds that Paul played. It was a junior worlds, correct? Yeah, if you put if you put this field in a tournament now, you'd be like, "Oh, it's a stacked field." Yeah, super stacked field. And, and it, what's bizarre to me is it was your first tournament. Yeah, it was, I, yeah, it was mine. I know Uliberry's first tournament. I, I don't know about the other players, but we, again, we've you've talked about this before, but I think it's so entertaining to to just list these names: Devin Owens, still good; Paul Uliberry, still good; James Conrad, still good; you, still good; and then you have Chandler Fry, still good. What was that experience like for you, and how did that forehand heavy game, how did that go for you? So by this time, I was developing the backhand, so I know it was a mix between the two, okay. but here, the forehand heavy game was was decent, because it was a little bit more of a wooded course and uh-huh. shorter. I remember we were playing these short courses. Where were you at? Uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. Yeah, okay. Flagstaff, Arizona. So I remember I, I could throw backhand, throw it pretty hard, but there was no you know, telling really where it was going to go. Uh-huh. But it did have power because I was learning that it was very similar to a baseball swing. I see. So okay. I, I knew how to just rip it, work my hips, throw the disc, but the control part was all over the place. <laughs> Were you learning technique from anybody? Were you emulating any players that you got to watch on like the pre-YouTube videos at all? I mean, we had some local pros, uh, okay. Kyle Crabtree, Robert McEntee, and then there were some other ones like... Uh, Masters players now, but Chris Brophy, Bobby still Music, good. still uh, good. Yeah, so there was there. Yeah, there's uh, Steve Rico, Philo Brathwaite. Wow. Yeah, so there's some there's some people that were right in the, the area. So in 2005, I didn't see any of those guys. Okay. But, but a little bit after that, once I started playing more tournaments, I'd see those guys more frequently. But directly at my course was Robert McEntee, Kyle Crabtree, Stephen Gailey. Those guys were ripping the disc. Yeah. So I did get to see it firsthand how mm-hmm. far throwing the disc was possible. Yeah. So I, I kind of emulated them a little bit. And then actually someone that really helped me out a lot was Reese Sweeney. And he kind of showed me some techniques like hand in the pocket, keep that arm tucked. So if you see pictures of me now, it's like my hand is still in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Like that was to get it out of the way and keep it there. So those were like training methods and things like that that really helped. So I, w- I was very fortunate in, in learning some things early. How was this tournament experience for you? Were you nervous out of your mind or were you more just like stoked to get into like a, a tournament environment? I <laughs> Do you even funny. remember? No, I, I do. So on the way there, so I was taken there by Jerry Davis, 
uh, this guy named Ari, I don't know his last name, and then my buddy Davis Massey Miller. So we went to Flagstaff, Arizona, probably a month before the Worlds to go see the courses. Kind of, they're like, yeah, you should go check them out a little bit, and uh, we'll go play them because it was about a six-hour drive, I think. <sighs> and so we went out there, played. I remember we spent like two or three days. I got altitude sickness first time out. Oh there. no! Yeah, altitude really? sickness. Yeah. So that was my first time ever really traveling. Got sick on this one. They went for a hike in Sedona, Arizona. I'm just sick in the in the van. And it's like what seven thousand feet elevation, something like that. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, but it, it is. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a little bit up there. And I was at this time, at that time I was 14. Okay. So I was freshman in high school. No, I wasn't even in high school yet. I was just out of eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then, by the time Worlds came. I didn't realize how far I was traveling because I slept the whole time. Uh-huh. I was in the back of the van. I slept. I didn't realize that we drove, you know, six to eight hours away and I was in a different state. I didn't know what that was. In eighth grade, too. Yeah, That's like a I big d- deal. I didn't know what that was. You mm-hmm. know, the furthest we I'd ever gone was maybe an hour for a field trip for yeah. school. So I didn't realize I was a state over. I didn't realize, like, <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here. You're like, up in the mountains. Yeah. And- I, I, none of that ever clicked. Now I really know what eight hours of driving is like. And yeah, then, for I, real. It's 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 long. So it was kind of normal being there. It was kind of normal, but it okay. was weird having so many kids my age playing against a lot of kids. That's my awesome. Age. But so many. But you know, with the league in Huntington Beach, having the junior league, mm-hmm. kind of, I was kind of accustomed to that. But wow, I wasn't. That's true. I wasn't used to getting beat like I did here at this event at that time. I was used to beating all the kids. You got beat by Do, huh? Oh, smacked by Do. That's a lot of strokes there. I think even after his final nine, he still beat me. After that tournament experience, I noticed, you know, we'll move into moving to kind of the next year because it looks like you moved open pretty quick. Kind of. We had the Golden State Classic in the area, so I would just play that for fun. I was not a pro at all. I didn't play any pro. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was just because they, they said I should play it and it was local tournament. You bumped up to advance. And actually, it's interesting because a lot of the players that I've interviewed moved up to open right away if you go back to 2015 i played two am tournaments well i played a junior and or 2005 sorry i got a beat down you got whooped 20th place at the southern california championships yeah so that was a that was an eye-opening experience like if you how many players were there 24 25 i got 20th out of 25 yeah what happened that's the first time i've ever felt like i've lost in my life Ever? ever ever yeah ever at anything so so what happened like walk me through this I was just, I was playing, but I wasn't ready for that. So I got beat down at this tournament by a lot. 20th place out of 25. I did not like it. So then I had all winter knowing that that's the last tournament of the year. So yeah. Championship, that's the last tournament of the year. And then we, we always have a big one, the wintertime open in February. Yeah. So I had, you know, November, December, January. I had three months to get ready for it. So I was like, I don't want that to happen again. You got hungry even after a loss and you're like fresh out of eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so now I'm in high school at this point. Yeah, and then you win. You win Wintertime Open. Mm-hmm. You set your mind on this tournament specifically, it sounds like. Just, yeah, just getting ready and like, I don't yeah. want to lose like that again. And you won uh, by three, and that's your first real win, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that probably felt phenomenal. Yep. Do you and remember the feeling? Yeah, I do. Uh, Richard Thompson, I mean, we were battling. I mean, Richard Thompson's still really good now, but a lot of these players are... Sh- were way better than me, way, way, I mean, at least 10 years older than me at the time. Richard Thompson was beating me down, actually, at this tournament in the final nine. And then uh, the, the island hole actually got him, and I think I gained four strokes. So I was trailing, and we were battling. But then that island hole, I got a lot of strokes on him. 
and I remember being able to hold on to that and win. But it was like, I mean, I was 917 rated winning advance in Southern California. You went 991, 994, and you dropped a, a fresh 930 <laughs> to finish the tournament. How was so, the backhand at this tournament? Like A lot better. Okay. Yeah, a lot better. So what, what were you it. doing? Were you hyzer flipping? Were you throwing flat? Like, what was your kind more, of preferred shot? More than likely, probably hyzer flipping, probably throwing orcs. Uh, the wraith was probably out by then. Um, were you throwing mids and putters backhand? Lots of rocks. Okay. Lots of rocks, lots of AVR. Yeah, awesome. I mean, that was pretty much my bag back then was was just AVR rock and then the beast or wraith. Probably wow, you was. are so lucky that you learned the right way because some people do not put yeah. those discs in their bag right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's speed 12, 13 now. Did you, get, did you get instruction of like what disc to choose or I, did you just get lucky? I was just at that time to where I didn't have to deal oh, with the high so speed awesome. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I mean, I, I don't even think I had a T-Bird in my bag until I went pro. You're just rocking the orc. That's a great disc. Mm-hmm. It's a great, like, if you look at the flight numbers, it's a fantastic control driver. So you get this big win in 2006. It feels really good. You're starting to develop the backhand. You have the right equipment in your bag. You're really learning the game the right way. 2007 looked like a pretty big year for you. You played the rest of 2006 advanced. You played one open tournament. And now you're just jumping in. And what was going through your head in 2007? Were you like, okay, I'm going to make this a profession of mine? Like, was it that already in your head? Or what exactly were you thinking going into this year? So I was still in high school. 2006, I would have been a sophomore. 2007, so going into junior year, sophomore, junior year, Mm -hmm. back and forth. So that was more of like, I don't have a job, but I can win tournaments and make money. So that's kind of a job type deal. So that's kind of how I was looking at it. I didn't think about, I'm going to go travel the country do this. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if there's any tournaments that I travel to outside of the California besides the AM uh-huh. Worlds. And I thought, oh yeah, it's just one event a year. You'll go to that and come back mm-hmm. and you just play your area. So I didn't think of anything globally or even You weren't nationally. thinking big yet. Yes, not at that point. Even even when I do turn pro. Yeah. You started the season with an NT again, the Golden State Classic, and you got whomped again. 34th place no cash. What were you, did you kind of observe a little bit that the players that were playing at the time, like at that tournament, did you take anything away? Like, man, I really need to work on this that these pros are, are doing that I'm not. So yeah, I was still advanced when I played the Golden State Classic. So I was still technically an am. Mm -hmm. And the thing with the Golden State Classic is everyone that tours is coming to town. Exactly. Coming to town. So I still, at that point, still didn't think like you weren't really looking at the pros like, man, I, I really need to throw like that guy. No, no. Um, I'm trying to think who stood out. I think I do remember seeing Avery and Val and Nate uh-huh. and it and Philo. And I know I do remember seeing Climo because they were having a guts competition in the tennis courts. So they were playing guts. That's so I remember awesome. seeing them there. I never saw them play. I just saw them play guts. Uh-huh. So I remember seeing them and thinking like, I mean, they're pretty tall people. They're big people. You know, yeah. they're all six, four, six. What is Climo? Six, four, like six, three. There, yeah. Six, three. And, you know, Avery's up there as well, Philo and all this. So I'm like, dang, these guys are big. Like, they're yeah. big people. I, I I don't know. I thought they were, like, larger than life at that time. And mm-hmm. it's like, that that's pretty cool what they're doing. But I didn't see myself go into that position because I didn't think that that was still a possibility of something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I didn't think there was a, a living doing that. And, I mean, I wasn't wrong. Yeah. But There uh, really wasn't. They yeah. had to really work hard back then. Yeah, so still had no vision of going pro and doing what they were doing okay. at that point. Yeah, that is what is so interesting to me because, and we can walk through the rest of this year if you want, but I noticed in 2008, you 
did go on tour. So yeah, what here, happened here in 2007? Yeah, I played Am Worlds, took second, and I was like, all right, I can't play Am anymore. I'm, I'm second highest. I'm the second best amateur in the world. I lost in a three-way playoff to Greg Schwartz. So I feel like I should have been the number one. Good old Greg Schwartz Greg from Wisconsin. Schwartz got me. Yep, Great guy. Home courses. He got <laughs> me there. So I come back home, play this one, and I beat a 1030 rated player. Yeah, you beat Micah Doris, who is sick. Yep. So I beat him, and I take home first ever win in my first ever official pro tournament. You know, I'm turning pro wow. at this event right after Am Worlds. So I play this one, and I'm just like, I can do this. Were you on cloud <laughs> nine? Were you just like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. But again, I was like, I learned how to win at an amateur level. Mm-hmm. I learned how to win. So this didn't feel any different. It mm-hmm. felt like I belonged here. Yeah. So the one at Golden State, mm-hmm. no vision of ever going pro and doing much with it. Win this tournament, my first one pro. I don't remember how I finished the rest of the year, but it's competitive. Mm-hmm. Like I'm competing the whole way through. Yeah, you're cashing. You're finally like cashing in these tournaments mm-hmm. that you're playing. So they're all in California. Las Vegas, I kind of consider as California. It's only four yeah. hours away. Same players. Then I go to the, the Players' Cup in Florida. Uh, yeah, first, you did. What First pro tournament outside. And that's because Robert McEntee's like, hey, you want to come with me to this? Yeah. And this was one of those match play? Or was no, it a straight-up tournament? No, straight-up tournament at the Black Hawk or Red Hawk or in something. In Florida, like, right? Yeah, in Florida. And it was my first time to Florida. And I mean, I was blown away. 10,000 first place. Was it uh, Felberg? Yeah, Felberg won. Yeah, so it was like, that was my first eye-opening experience of like, he made $10,000. I was like, I want to make $10,000. Like, I, <laughs> I just won 500 at my yeah. first win. And I went to Florida, and, I said, and that was the first time I got taste of traveling at a pro level. Yeah. Staying in a hotel with someone else, and I was like, I want to do this. Like, I want to do this. Like, the light bulb kind of went off in your head. Got smoked at this tournament, and I was like, I'm going to go for Rookie of the Year the next year. That's when I was That fired like, you up that much. Yeah, because I took 40-something plays, and I didn't like it. Of course. I didn't like it. So. And you thought you were probably better than these guys, too, probably going into it, right? I didn't know any of them. I see. I didn't know who they were. Like even when I saw Climo and all those people at that event, I didn't really know mm-hmm. what they were capable of with the disc. Yeah, I guess I guess Jomez and like those people were really not around. I think not maybe Disc Golf Planet was, was. It was no. It was only um, Disc Golf Planet didn't come until 2012 either. I think or 2000 like a little bit before that, like 11, 2010 or something 11, like that. Yeah. yeah. So it was actually just Billy Crump. Class. Oh yeah, that was okay. That's all there really was. Yep. So yeah, you had no idea. You you know you weren't able to even study the way these people threw. You know mm-hmm. you had your own style and that was it. Yeah. So exactly. So I went to this one, got a taste of what it was like to travel at these events, and I, I mean I got a, I got a really nice taste of disc golf and competitive, but I also got to finally experience what the negative side of disc golf is as far mm-hmm. as how unprofessional it could be. I see. Mm-hmm. As so, in this tournament at Players Cup, yeah, in Florida. What was so unprofessional about it? I got to experience what the disc golf culture was back then, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was drugs, alcohol, the party scene, the we're not we're not really here for the tournament itself, we're here to party. A lot of professional disc golf back then was like you were t- talking about, the best players in the game, Avery Jenkins, Climo, they were playing guts in a tennis mm-hmm. court, you yep. know, which is Chain to smoking. me super cool. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really cool. But yeah, like you said, like best player in the game is just chain smoking cigarettes and yeah, like they were living it like it was the 1920s in baseball. Like Babe Ruth was up there just smoking a cigar while he's hitting. Exactly. I'm just like, I know. And and now to think about where we are now, it's like whoa, mm-hmm. like these are still phenomenal players, but mm-hmm. ju- it just shows how far we've come that they 
weren't serious and just wanted to hang out and live that road life and scrap here and there. I mean, not to take away from how amazingly skilled these players were and athletic a lot of these players were. Were you expecting something a lot grander when you went to that tournament? I think one of the benefits to me is I went into a lot of these events with no expectations, okay. and that's why I did so well, I feel like, at a lot of them. You'll, you'll notice when I do have a bad finish, I'm like, I, I have expectations. I okay. set false expectations. Not false ex- expectations, but I set expectations, and then I got frustrated when they weren't going as yeah. I expected, and that kind of you know starts a snowball effect. Down exactly. So that was like your final tournament of, of 2007. Yep. So this is a great explanation because half your season is advanced, half your season's open, and you only played 16 tournaments, it looks yeah. like. And then all of a sudden, what clicks for you going into 2008? You went from 16 events, half of them am, and you played 33 events, and you played, all, it looks like all the NTs, you played majors. Who did you tour with? How did you plan this? Like, what were you, like, money-wise, what were you touring on? Like, what was that transition like? The biggest thing was I got sponsors. Okay. So I got sponsored by Innova in 2007, right before the Amateur World Championships. Okay. Uh, and that was just because one of the employees, Ron Brawley, was at, I played with him in AM, uh-huh. and he was really good friends with Dave. Mm-hmm. He worked at Innova, but he was really good friends with Dave. And he told Dave, like, you need to get this kid now. Like, you need to get him. He's going to be somebody. He's going to be good. And Dave was like, really trusted Ron. And I was okay. like, all right, well, put them on the team. You know, they had just started some new team on Innova. I forget the name of it. it like might... a tier? Like a tier of yeah, team is what you're tier. saying? Yeah, so I got put at the bottom one, went out, proved myself at Amworlds, did well. And then um, then I got picked up by, at that time, it was, I think, Parked out okay, of Minnesota. Yep. I remember that. I think it was Parked. And then so what would happen was a lot of these tournaments, I would just fly out and stay with someone. This is like the most wild transition from like not touring to to straight up touring that I've seen. Yeah. So if you actually look at a lot of these, they're in California, Vegas or Arizona, Uh a majority of them. So very rarely would I fly out. Like, okay, so you went just drove, drove play, played, drove yep, back, and okay. then we'd have places to stay. But then the Minnesota Majestic was actually the first one I flew to, and that's where Parked was located. Okay. So I flew to that one, and then Kansas City wide open. I actually went out to this one with my grandfather because I didn't have anyone to travel with. Okay. So it was the first trip to Kansas City my grandfather had ever been on. First disc golf tournament he actually ever went on because uh-huh. he was very heavy that I played baseball, so he didn't like that I was playing disc golf. I know that feeling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he wasn't disappointed. But then once I finally went, what actually really got him kind of like, all right, I can see, I can see him doing that is that Steve Rico won and he's Mexican. Really? My grandfather's first generation. Okay. So seeing Steve Rico, meeting him, and knowing he's Rico and, and Mexican, hardworking. And he's a great guy, too. That great guy. always helps. Mm-hmm. So every time I see Steve or uh, like there's a turn that Steve's at, my grandfather asks me, like, you say hi to Steve? You see him? Oh, like, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's just, you know, like like how our culture is. Like anyone that's Mexican is kind of family and in a sense. Kind of cheering each other on. Yes. Kind of thing. So yeah. Stevie winning that one kind of helped propel my disc golf career. Really? <laughs> it definitely helped. Shout out to Steve Rico. Definitely that's amazing. Get get some support from my grandfather. So he actually flew flew with me out to that one. And you know, Steve actually always asks about my grandfather and vice versa. So it's, it's pretty cool anytime I see him. It's um, like a really wholesome thing, man. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that was really cool. But after that, so those ones I kind of I had a sponsor that one. My grandfather took me to this one, and then I'm trying to think of who I hopped in with for the rest. Yeah, of who these. are you touring with? I, I'm I'm trying to I'm kind of mixing up some of the years with them. But what's funny is, so Schuster and I used to be really good friends because his aunts live 
from where I grew up, his aunts lived like 15 minutes away okay. on the beach. So we would hang out a lot. And actually, the High Plains Challenge, the very next tournament, he flew into Colorado, and my dad drove me. I actually missed, is this 2008? Yeah. I missed my high school graduation because I went to the High Plains Challenge. That's so, a good move. Yeah, so Big I, move. I actually got a call from one of the girl I was sitting next to. Her, her name's Alicia McAvity, or used to be, because we were MCs. So she called me. I was like, hey, you're not here for rehearsal. Like, where, where are you? I was like, uh, I'm in Colorado. I'm not going to be there for graduation. <laughs> I'm frothing, man. I'm sorry. So, I can't. So I still don't know if I had an empty seat or if they even had a seat for me there yeah. or whatnot. But, so I went out to Colorado. My dad drove me out because he actually lived mm-hmm. in Colorado, so he wanted to go there. So he drove us out. Shushrik flew in, mm-hmm. and he stayed with my dad and I. And it was the first time my dad and I actually like bonded over a tournament. Like I remember awesome. I got him. It was Father's Day around that time. I remember I got him a cake. And I was like, happy Father's Day. Mm-hmm. Like, I love you. And that was, my dad and I didn't have a real relationship back then. So, like, he teared, he started crying and stuff. And I yeah. was like, that was kind of like a moment where, like, he, he, you know, it was like we actually, like, bonded and our relationship kind of changed. Like, once I was 18. You at know, this tournament? Yes, at the, at the High Plains awesome. Challenge. Yeah, because we didn't really have a relationship, you know. I mean, he had his stuff, you know, as a father and stuff. Of course. Wasn't really a, a great dad. But, you know, our relationship once I was 18 has been a lot better than I whatever was. That's before amazing. Then. Yeah. So this one, I remember, you know, we picked up Shoestrick, played that, and then we drove back here and we spent the summer at his aunt's a lot and at the beach. What I do remember is now, now the dates are coming together is he had connections on that side of the coast, Shoestrick, because he grew up in Knoxville. Okay. So he knew people out there. So I flew out there and stayed with him and Dan Sisk. So he's actually, you mentioned Franklin earlier today. Yeah. He lived in Franklin. Okay. So Beautiful I remember, area. Mm-hmm, I remember I stayed with Shustrick, Dan, and some other people mm-hmm. at these hotels for that event. And then it was a lot of fly in, fly out. So I flew in, stayed with them for that okay. one, then flew out back to Santa Maria. Uh, and then a lot of these California events, the only reason I was able to get to them is because my buddy Noah Rodriguez. Okay. Mm-hmm, and he was one of the best men in my wedding. He was one of my groomsmen but has been a best friend ever since, you know, I started disc golf, you know, again, it was another one of those Mexican connections. So awesome. He helped me get to all these, you know, these California tournaments, but everything looks like it was fly in, fly out. But then the Alabama Sizzler, another Shoestrick connection. We Uh stayed with people. So it's funny is that Shoestrick and I were head to head in the rookie of the year race. Oh, really? Yeah. We were going back and forth and we were staying together at this. The Alabama Sizzler? Mm Mm-hmm. Another checkpoint. Shoestrick's game and your game, in 2008, what were you looking like? I remember reading an article about you just when I started getting into disc golf, and they were like, oh, the young the young gun Paul McBeth with tons of arm speed and, you know, a blazing hot putt. Like, is yes. that what you were like? You were just power player, yeah. aggressive? Yeah. Pure, pure distance, just threw everything super hard. Same thing with the putt. Like, the putt was just rockets, you know? And I remember very early on in my career, Actually, it was before this. It was 2007 mm-hmm. Golden State Classic. So it was the one pro tournament I played yeah. in 2007. No, it would have been 2006. So the one pro tournament I played, uh, I had a buddy, da- David Westmoreland. And he was sitting there, and he was just chatting up with Felber. He was a little bit older than I was. Uh, not not extremely, you know. He was probably my age now. He was probably 30 at the time. And mm-hmm. he was just chatting up with Dave Felberg. And, and I was at the practice basket putting. And I was like missing, missing, missing. And like I was making them, but I'd miss and go 35 long, miss 35 long. And Felberg made a comment of, and Felberg's going to use this. Like, he, I'm going to say this. And he says it too. He's, okay. He says he made my career because of this comment. <laughs> okay. But he told Dave, 
he said that this kid will never go anywhere if he continues to putt like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dave. He said that. Yeah. So you heard what he said like da- at the time? Yeah, my buddy David told me what Felberg said. Just because you putted too hard? Is that yeah, why? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, because I was spin putting back when so everyone pushed So you were straight into out spin putting? Not, not that bad. Like okay. similar to how I putt now. Okay. Not much different. Just but, more pace. But back then, everyone was a push putter. Mm-hmm. Avery, Felberg, Climo, Doss was the spinny push. He had like pace control slow. on yeah. his spin putt. So everyone was a push putter back then. Mm-hmm. Nobody successful was a spin putter. And my putt was very similar now. It, it, the only thing that's changed is the velocity. Yeah. I've won a couple of worlds with that. Okay, so yeah, just just I was just checking in, and I know Schustrick at the time, 2008, he was still really young because a lot of new disc golfers truly don't know how. I don't know if I would say. I mean, I guess I have to say influential because he had that long linear form, and I back then he still had that right. That was like kind of his thing. Yeah, it yeah. was. It's way different than it is now. Yeah, but man, I remember when he was coming up in the game, like. I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I'm supposed to look like now? Like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Like, was he super like obsessed with form from, from the get-go in 2008? I think he just loved throwing. I think yeah. he just loved throwing. And I don't know when he started. I think he started a little bit earlier than I did. Mm-hmm. But he developed a lot quicker mm-hmm. as far as the game. And he was he won a major. He won the USDGC at the age of 20, I believe, or 19. I think he was 18 or something like was that. Was he 18? Yeah. He won in 2000 and what, what year did he win? It might have been 2010. So he might have been Yeah, 18. it was 2010. Yeah, yep. so he would have been like 18, 19, right around there. Yeah. Were you inspired by his throw or were you like, I need to beat this kid? Did you pull anything from him at all as you guys were like traveling together? No, no, no. no. I don't you think stayed we, in your Yeah, lane. I don't think we bounced off each other skill-wise, like how it is today. Because he wasn't throwing sidearm either. Um, He has a good sidearm. He did. To be honest, how Will threw back then is what Eagle's doing now. Yes, I, I agree with that. Very similar. Like it's just 10 years later, pretty much. And I, I have to believe that the way he threw was so distinct. Like if he was just a dark vector, yes. I would know exactly who was yep. throwing. And I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people, especially once he started playing in that disc golf media era, yeah. I feel like a lot of people emulated how he threw. You finish up this year. Are there any big highlights that you, I mean, in 2008 that you want to highlight before we kind of move on? I think the biggest thing was I did terrible at the Players' Cup again. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think the biggest thing in 2008 was the Rookie of the Year. Beaten Schuster for Rookie of the Year. Yeah. We had a good battle, and that was something that was going to happen for a long time until the injury exactly. and stuff that, that kind of changed his career path. But no big no big wins. Yeah, nothing huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a good showing at USDGC. I think you got like 11th. Oh, I'm not I, sure. I was really good at getting on lead cards final day. So at Memorial, I took 10th place, but I was on the... So actually, it started at Vegas. Uh-huh. So at Vegas, I was on the lead card, tied with Barry Schultz for the lead. Uh-huh. That was when I was like, dang, I'm actually playing in this. And and people were like, this is unheard of. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. The old guard was starting mm-hmm. to get broken. And then, yeah, Rico. I remember Rico being at being at that one. But uh, I ended up taking fifth at the A tier. Mm-hmm. Didn't I had no clue what A tiers were. I had no clue. Like, everything leading up to this was just California. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what an A tier meant. I didn't know anything. I was like, I'm going to turn around. I want to win this. Then the next week was the national tour of the Memorial. I took 10th place. But again, I was on the lead card going into the final round. And kind of choked a little bit, dropped down to 10th. And it was more so that people played great on the final round. And I didn't have that yeah. instinct yet. Took 10th place at NT. So my first A tier, first NT as an official pro, mm-hmm. fifth and 10th. That's pretty solid. Yeah. That's 
very solid. Mm-hmm. And you were just playing super aggressive, it sounds like. Yeah, I had no clue. I just wanted yeah. to win. Like, I didn't care who I was playing against. Exactly. I just want to win. And I remember, I think, Gentleman's Club, Barry Schultz won, and then the Memorial. I don't think it was Climo because I've actually, in my life, I've only seen Climo win one time. Really? Yep. One time ever. Out of all these tournaments, he's only ever won one. So, really? Yeah. Oh, I, it was an NT, right? It was like an NT after he like... It was in Atlanta. It was, but it was like twenty. It was like twenty years after his first world title or something like that, right? It was like a crazy amount of time afterwards. It might have been two thousand eight. So that's the only time I've ever seen Climo win a title in person. Wow. So he's been he's been good for so long. That's the craziest thing. It's two thousand and eight. He won his first world title in like ninety. What? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, twenty eight years after it. So he won an NT, and I remember because I took third or fifth. And we can actually move into 2009. Okay. Because this is your second year. You're kind of touring. You're pretty much touring again, right? You're doing kind of a similar thing to 2008. Second year in, yeah. I was going to say, kind of a big deal. You win Rookie of the Year, and then people are starting to talk about you. You're like not any longer like a shock to like go up and, and beat people. Yeah, because at USDGC 2008, I, uh, I was on the lead card going to the final round. Didn't win. 2008, I think, was DOS. Yep, you won. Uh, yeah, so that was like the first Discraft champion of the USDGC, so it was uh-huh. a big deal. I remember fireworks going off. It was wild. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, still not still not finishing the events. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it wasn't a surprise to be up there anymore at the top. Yeah. You know, not winning them yet, but still up there at the top. My career has kind of been like stepping stones. Uh-huh. Like, you know, like when they say like things just click. That's pretty much how my career has been. 2008, win rookie of the year. 2009, Kind of forgettable. I think same money earned, not much different, just more consistent. But this year, 2010, again, this is all like pre-world title like talk. I, I think it's all very significant because like you said, there's clicking points. So yeah, so what's with 2009 is 2008, I had graduated high school. That was my graduating year. 2009, I was out of high school. Now it's like, all right, you're out of high school. You're going to go to college. What are you going to do? Exactly. So those questions started coming up. And then my family's like, you're not playing baseball. You're not doing this. Uh-huh. We're not going to support you anymore. In like, disc golf? It, in anything. You okay. know, like you got to get a job, you got to go to school, or you're going to have to do this full time and hopefully make a living doing it. But that was, they never said that part. Yeah. They never said disc but golf. But that's what they were it. saying to you. Yeah, you're going to be on your own. So, yeah, now that leads into 2010. Where And you didn't play that many tournaments. Mm-hmm. What was your situation here? So if you look at the date difference, it goes Fountain Hills, Memorial, then Worlds. Yeah, and then the next one's in August. Because I was told if I played baseball... I didn't have to work. So I entered a, a baseball league. Who told you that? My mom. Okay. Yeah. So I was living at that time. Now we had moved around a lot, did all that stuff when I was younger. And then finally we ended up settling at my grandfather's house. So my grandmother okay. passed away in 97 or 98, somewhere uh-huh. around there. Uh, so it was just my grandfather and then someone else always ended up living there. So now by this age, my mom had moved in. My brothers and I had lived with... Now we moved in with my grandfather in Huntington Beach. Okay. So we're at that address that we lied about all growing up. Uh, so now we're actually living at that address in HB. And she said I had to get a job or play baseball. And I was still really co- close with my baseball coach. So actually my baseball coach was a huge influence in my life. Um, I When I started playing baseball at five, uh-huh. I was on his team with his son. Oh, so okay. So five years old. His son was a year or two younger than me, but he was like, his son was very talented as well in mm-hmm. baseball. And, and my coach was like, he, he was really good at baseball. Like, I don't know if he officially had a minor league contract. He was a professional surfer, though. I know that for 100%. Sick. But he was actually, I think, minors for pitching as well. So his son was obviously trained uh-huh. at baseball very young. So we played together from literally T ball at five years old up until I, when I went to high school, 
his son was still a little bit younger, went to a different high school. Mm -hmm. So we didn't play there, but we were still extremely close. And he told me about this baseball league. So there's this league perfect game, which I'm sure anyone that knows baseball will know what perfect game is. Mm -hmm. They started a, a sub league called ABD, which was American Baseball Development. And it was basically a league for college players who weren't playing during the school year to play and would that league and stay fresh mm -hmm. and stay. And, and then another place for scouts to come and watch okay. players. So I got into this league and this was the first year I did it. So I was able to play Memorial and then I was baseball all the way through and I was like, I, you're like Michael Jordan coming back to basketball. Like, <laughs> like what? It was like still fresh for you. You were like yeah. still good. Yeah. So yeah. So I started actually the baseball year in 2009 at the end after USDGC uh -huh. and all that stuff. So it was. I mean, being in Southern California, the winter was basically a summer. So yeah. we got to play starting in like December. And I told my coach, I was like, Hey, coach, like, like I'm gonna do all baseball, but I want to play this one tournament. It's the World Championships. I don't want to miss it. Uh -huh. So all the way up until August, like you said, mm -hmm. I was playing baseball, like five games a week. Like we'd play doubleheader, doubleheader game in the week. Okay. So I was getting shredded, like, like just playing that much baseball, but I loved it. I still love baseball. I love competing it. And that's actually where I played with uh, Davinsky, the one that went on to, to play in the majors. So, I mean, I was, I was having fun. I was loving it. And I had some potential to go play at some, some schools in mm -hmm. my area, but I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't like that after making money playing disc golf. I mean, minimal money, you know, below minimum wage. But you were but getting all this recognition too, mm -hmm. and like you meant something to that community. And yeah, and and this is kind of the point where I'm like, coach, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go play this one. Like I'm gonna have to tap out for the the week or two. And I went out to the World Championships in 2010. I went out to Crown Point, Indiana. Yep, Lemon Lake. Lemon Lake took 12th place. Watch Eric McCabe win the worlds. Took 12th place. Mm -hmm. I hadn't touched a disc that whole time through there because I was playing baseball and I was like, man, like I just took 12th place at a tournament and I wasn't even playing all year. What could I do if I really dedicated myself to disc golf? You just kept thinking about the game. You yeah. I was like, what could, like if uh -huh. I took all this time, like all this effort that I'm putting into baseball, all this training and actually put it into disc golf because before I was just playing disc golf. Uh -huh. I wasn't working towards it. I exactly. was just playing. You weren't treating it like you would treat baseball. Baseball. Yeah. Baseball. I knew like there's structure. There's stuff behind it. Disc golf was just a game. It was a game. And it was a game to a lot of people, too. It was a game to almost all the players. Yep. There's practice, obviously, tons of practice, but it was not, we all know it wasn't treated like. And that's, you know, and that's how yeah. I viewed it from the beginning. Cause like I said, when I saw the Golden State Classic, saw Climo, File, all them playing guts, just drinking beer and, and you know, doing recreational stuff. Yeah. Like it was just a game. This is mm -hmm. just a hobby. They're not doing anything. They're getting paid to just do it to do it for fun. Mm -hmm. Baseball is where money was. Yeah. And then I played this one and I was like, how good could I be if I actually dedicated time to disc golf and dedicated the energy and the amount of time I put into baseball? What if I put that time and energy into disc golf? Like what would happen to the what game? What could I do? Yeah. And that was when it switched. I took 12th after not playing. And that was like another one of those huge stepping stones. So this is like a really monumental year for you. It was, yeah. it was almost like you found truly who you were and what you wanted. Like as an adult, you weren't just doing it for somebody else. And this is, yeah, this is that point where I started, like where I started thinking like, why, why can't we implement what other sports have done into disc golf? Not just, not just on the athletic side, but more the financial side. Mm -hmm. Like, why is there such a difference in the sport? Exactly. Why is there such a big difference? And uh, one of the big things is, is which I've actually learned recently, which I did in my life, but I didn't realize I did it in my life uh -huh. is, is, you know, hanging out with Ben Askren. 
He's very smart. He's very intelligent. Oh, got definitely. a lot of got a lot of like. I mean, he's doing this these motivational stuff and kind of things. But the biggest thing I got from him is he says athletes don't realize when to pivot. You know, there might be like uh, I'm trying to think of an athlete, for example, that that should have done something like this. But what he says is like they might be in their career at some point and realize like that's not the right sport. Football is the easiest example when quarterbacks aren't good enough for the NFL. But some of them learn to to pivot. Like they might be a great wide receiver. Like mm-hmm. this is something that Tim Tebow didn't do. Wasn't that great of a quarterback? Extremely well, like extreme athlete. Could have played tight end. Could have played fullback. Could have done like all sorts of things. But he didn't want to do that pivot to where he gets to the top level, but he's not good enough for yeah. that position. But he's good enough for the NFL, just not at that position. So this is something that in my life I found that point where all right, it's time to pivot. Like I I'm playing baseball. I love baseball, but even if I do everything I want in baseball yeah. and become a professional, become a Hall of Famer, mm-hmm. do everything I can in baseball, I don't feel like I changed the sport of baseball. This was that pivot point in me. And I was like, I could be that. Mm-hmm. You know, I could be those those pioneers in baseball mm-hmm. and who, you know, like the people that I that I loved when I was younger, I loved reading the books about like Willie Mays. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Ty Cobb and all these other ones that actually did something to the sport of baseball. Not the ones that are playing now who are just, you know, bumping up stats. They're not exactly. doing anything for the sport of baseball. It's kind of peaked at where it's at. Nothing, nothing right now is going to really change it. Mm-hmm. But those were the people that I idolized. Mm-hmm. And now it's like disc golf didn't have that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to like, I could actually make a difference in disc golf as a pioneer still rather than just a player. Exactly. So that was that pivot point that I made in 2010 to where I'm going to fully dedicate my life to You went this. all in. Yeah. The Flight Diary is edited by Lindsay Rodans, music by Johnny Darge. Next time on The Flight Diary, we dive into the second half of my conversation with Paul Macbeth. He shares some intimate stories about his early negotiations with Prodigy and how his life changed after winning his very first world title. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in a couple weeks.